Thank you very much, Daniel. My name is Jonathan Hugh, and I will be the moderator this afternoon. Thanks to everyone for attending this Boston Bar Association webinar. Hopefully everyone is as safe as can be as we all try to navigate these challenging times. A particular thanks to the Boston Bar Association for helping put together this event. And I would encourage everyone to uh, join the BBA if they are not already a member, whether it's its resources like this panel or future networking events, when social gathering restrictions are loosened, the BBA offers an invaluable opportunity for law students and attorneys of all stages to benefit. Joining us today are five esteemed panelists representing different parts of the Boston legal community. I'll introduce them by name and allow them to give a brief introduction of themselves. First is Amy Ross. Hi everyone, I'm Amy Ross. I am the uh, Chief of Attorney Talent at Ropes and Gray. Um, and I am in our, well, typically in our Boston office, although most of us are working from home right now, so I am actually in my house. So hopefully you won't hear too much background noise, but if you do, I will apologize for that, but no guarantees. Next, we also have Javier Flores. Hi everyone, I'm Javier Flores. I'm the uh, office managing partner for Dinsmore & Scholl here in Boston. Uh, I too am working from home today, although th that wasn't always the plan. Um, uh, but thanks for joining the panel and uh, looking forward to providing you some useful information. Next, we're also joined by Mr. Brian Vaughn Martell. Hi everyone, um, my name is Brian. I am the Director of Private Practice and JD Advising at Suffolk Law School. So I run Suffolk's OCI program. I've been uh, at the law school for about eight years. Prior to that, um, I worked at K&L Gates as a commercial litigator and I went through the OCI process as a student. So hopefully I can give you some perspective both from my time um, in the firm side and now um, running a program at a law school. And thanks to the BBA. We're also joined by Ms. Courtney Herndon. Hi everyone, I'm Courtney Herndon. Uh, I am an intellectual property associate at Mintz. Um, I graduated from New England Law in 2015, so um, it's been a few years since I've been through OCI, um, but I'm happy to be here. And finally, we're also joined by Ms. Bianca Munoz. Hi everybody, my name is Bianca. I am a, a third year associate at Proskauer. I'm in the corporate department specifically um, and associate in the private credit group. Um, I also went through the OCI process uh, not too long ago, so I'm excited to give you some insights on my experience um, and also you know, the experience I've had um, interviewing uh, potential summer associates uh, for summer positions as well. Awesome. So to begin everything, I think it's best to get an idea specifically of what OCI is. And perhaps Brian, you would be best positioned to uh, give us uh, a starting point on what OCI is. Sure, um, OCI is uh, just in the kind of recruiting and employment world, it's a very unique process in which larger law firms um, are recruiting a year in advance um, which is actually, just full disclosure, not a normal way to be hiring that far in advance for a class of um, incoming attorneys, but um, typically, and I'm going to speak in terms of the traditional three years of law school, so first year, second year, third year. Um, I'm not used to doing that because at Suffolk we have evening students and dual degree students, but typically at the end of your first year, you go through a recruitment process with large law firms where you have screening interviews, and callback interviews to join their summer associate program the following summer, so in your second summer. 
Um, in that second summer, typically you join a class of students to get a taste of what life is like at a law firm, right? You take legal assignments, you're also kind of understanding the culture of the firm, you're getting a chance to work and know colleagues. Um, and then hopefully at the end of that summer, you get a final um, kind of postgraduate offer to join the firm once you graduate. Um, so OCI is a long process, right? If it starts at the end of your first year and it traditionally would not end until you become a first year associate um, post-graduation. Um, so it's a very unique way to hire. Um, it's a very thorough hiring process. Um, and um, I'm, I'm excited to kind of talk to you a little bit about some of the procedures um, that go along with that. Awesome. And in light of that, um, perhaps, Amy, you could get us started with uh, just an overview, perhaps, of what are some of the qualities that firms typically look for in potential candidates in OCI? Absolutely. So, um, you know, everyone is unique. And I think that's one of the approaches we try to take is that we are not looking for a cookie cutter. This is exactly what will make you a successful associate at Ropes and Gray or for that matter, in any law firm. Um, I think for the most part, we do look at academics. I can't lie and say that we don't, but we don't have grade cutoffs and we don't have things that we're saying, you know, we're not gonna look at people for those reasons. Um, but we're really looking for people who have a really strong work ethic, who have persevered, who have a lot of enthusiasm for working for us. I think that's one of the biggest things when someone comes through the process, if they look excited to be there, that's always a plus because believe it or not, sometimes people don't. Um, and, and really, want knowing what they're um kind of having they don't have to know what they want to do most people actually don't know what they want to do so i think even pretending that you do know what you want to do doesn't really help you through the process but having a sense of what life is like at a big law firm or if you're interviewing at a smaller law firm like what are the differences um and hopefully you know to the extent you're not sure when you're going through the process you use the opportunity to interview to ask and find out what is the most comfortable situation for you um, but we're looking you know for people who really want to be there more than anything else I also want to encourage students to kind of do your research because um, firm hiring and firm programs, while they all at first, and I understand this, may all seem the same, and um, firms definitely differ in kind of what they're looking for. You'll find what I call similar kind of core competencies that firms um, tend to desire in candidates, um, whether it be something like communication skills, or your interpersonal skills. Um, I've had firms come out and directly say, we're looking for someone who's resilient. We're looking for someone who is ambition. Um, we're looking for someone that has good professional judgment, right? So these are what we call core competencies are those kind of traits that um, may seem amorphous, but you as the candidate have an ability to kind of showcase those traits on your resume or when you're giving examples in interviews. And so some firms um, are actually a little more direct and will give you information ahead of time or you can find information, talk to the folks in your career services office to know what the specific competencies are that they evaluate. Because um, in essence, when firms are evaluating their own associates, right, for promotion or to move up to see if they're hitting certain marks um, in their legal work, they're also making sure that they're hitting these same competencies. So they look for that in, their, in hiring their summer associates, whether it be teamwork, which is a really popular one. Um, and I can't emphasize that enough, like make sure you have examples of teamwork on your resume because there's not gonna be a firm out there that's hiring through this process that is not gonna look for someone that can work well on teams. Um, and we could go through a whole host of those, but um, you know, 
talk to the folks in your career services offices or as you're talking to folks at firms and ask those questions to say, um, you know, when you were interviewing or if you're on the hiring committee, what sort of specific things do you look for um, and write down those traits. And then Courtney or Bianca, do you think from your perspective, when you were going through the OCI process, did you find any particular traits to be particularly advantageous to be uh, marketing to these firms? Courtney or Bianca? Or actually, <laughs> uh, sorry, I was unmeeting. Oh. Um, was <laughs> um, a while ago. So I think, you know, I, I mean, I think there's kind of this standard academic excellence, um, uh, you know, a, a law review or a journal. Um, I think to some degree that shows that you, um, you know, that you have academic excellence, that you have, you know, the writing and editing skills that are really important, but I also think it shows that you, um, you know, kind of take that conscious effort to kind of go above and beyond and you can do that successfully while still maintaining your grades. Um, I knew I wanted to clerk and so all of my, so a lot of my um, internships were clerkship or, you know, were within the courts and so that was kind of my focus. So I actually went through OCI, but I actually um, decided to do a full-time um, internship with a judge my 2L summer. Um, so that was another route of how I got into a firm. Um, so, so I have some experience going through the, the interview process, but not necessarily through the, um, through the end part of it. So, um, it was five years ago, but, you know, but I am, I do a lot of the interviewing and recruiting for Mint, um, for my practice group and then, um, through diversity. So I know what I look for in general. Um, and I think it, you know, it's a lot of what Brian and Amy have said before. I think, um, you know, teamwork is extremely important you know, wanting to be at Mints, knowing our culture is really important. Um, and then for Mints, we switched recently to um, a, a section-based hiring. So we don't have a hiring committee anymore. Um, our three major sections now do the hiring individually. So litigation does their own hiring, um, corporate does their own hiring, and then IP does their hiring um, in the litigation and prosecution. So it's a little bit different and then we do kind of ask you to know what you want to do um, if you're coming in because you will summer with with that practice group. I can talk a little bit more about that later. I, I think it's, uh, there, there really isn't one, you know, key trait um, that people are looking for. It's kind of a culmination of a whole bunch of different traits. Um, you know, for example, at Proskauer, when we are interviewing for summer associate positions, we're looking at um, a variety of different types of qualities that um, you know, uh, summer associates will possess. So whether that be uh, collaboration, teamwork, uh, taking responsibility, taking initiative. You know, it's, so it's, it's, it's good to, uh, when you're preparing for your interview and you're looking at your resume, to think about kind of those key areas and how could I provide an example of a time when I uh, displayed those particular traits. Um, and, you know, because a lot of times, a lot of the questions, the specific questions that you'll be asked will kind of be going around those core type of qualities that you would think, you know, an associate would need um, to be in a law firm. So speaking of what Courtney had brought up as well, um, Bianca, could you comment whether or not you yourself ha uh, had any law, uh, law review experience while you were in law school or what you perhaps did to help boost your resume in advance of OCI? 
Sure. Uh, yeah, so I was a part of the Suffolk Journal of Trial and Appellate Advocacy, um, which also has a moot court um, honor board uh, component to it as well. So it's both a journal as well as we put on competitions as well. Um, so that was something that I, uh, I decided to do the right on, something I really felt very passionate about, not only because, you know, I'd been told that this was something that looks good if you're going to the OCI process, but also because it's a really good opportunity to advance your research and writing skills, uh, which will go beyond just your legal writing class that you do as a first year um, uh, at, at law school. Um, other things that I did, um, my, for my 1L summer internship, um, I was a judicial intern again, you know, just really trying to improve my research and writing skills. Um, and so for me, it was, it was really just about getting some exposure to, you know, different areas of law, getting exposure to really being able to take you know, particular issues and being able to synthesize them um, with the goal in mind that when I would be interviewing, I would be able to take an example of some work that I had done and kind of bring people through the process of that. Um, so that was kind of my process and my thinking um, in terms of going into OCI. And then Javier, from your perspective, uh, uh, do you have um, any particular traits that your firm would look forward to? And could you perhaps talk to you a little bit about how your firm looks to recruit when it comes to OCI? Sure. Well, I mean, we're uh, kind of a unique uh, circumstance in, in Boston that we're, we're one of the smaller offices in the firm. Um, you know, the firm is approximately 700 lawyers, but we're only five lawyers in Boston. So, you know, I think this applies generally, but it applies even especially to us is that we're looking for someone when we're hiring for OCI First of all, who we view as a long-term hire, someone who's going to thrive in that process over their 2L summer and then eventually join the firm on a permanent basis. So with that consideration in mind, we want someone who is going to be a good fit culturally within the office. I mean, there's a number of candidates uh, who submit resumes and come in for interviews who have all the academic and intellectual credentials that are gonna make them successful lawyers. It's a matter of, are they a fit culturally within what we're trying to build within the Boston office? Are they a fit culturally within our practice group? Um, and Boston's exclusively at this point a litigation group. And is this someone who I see myself working with long-term? So from that standpoint, I think that, you know, one of the, one of the things that I haven't heard talked about yet is, is being personable, being upbeat, being energetic, uh, trying to engage with the interviewer and, and trying to forge a genuine connection with that person. Because ultimately, you know, you're, you're going to be competing with a number of people who are qualified, perhaps even more qualified than you. And it, it's going to be those little things that, that push you over the top and give you the best opportunity uh, to, to secure the position. Now, one, one additional thing I want to mention is that, you know, be, OCI involves a lot of rejection. So don't, you, know, you need to go into the process with a thick skin, understand that you're going to get far more rejections than you do acceptances. And I can tell you from, from having done interviewing and hiring for uh, a number of years now that we get it wrong a lot. It's really difficult. So just because you were rejected doesn't mean you weren't the best candidate for the job. It doesn't mean that you're not qualified for that role. It just means that you weren't selected in this particular instance based upon, uh, you know, a group of people who are making a decision based on a pretty small sample size. So don't get discouraged. Keep going and, and go into it 
understanding that uh, there's going to be a, a lot more downs than there are ups. So as a follow-up to that, and perhaps Amy can also chime in afterwards, uh, do, do, uh, if an individual, perhaps like myself, uh, who does poorly in their first year of law school, um, should they still uh, apply through the OCI process, or would you suggest at that point um, uh, an alternative focus? Javier, do you want to start? Sure. Um, <laughs> yes, apply. There, there's, there's never any harm in applying. You know, there's, there's obviously two stages to the OCI process. One is just the, the application, um, you know, which is just based on uh, determinations made based on paper, whether you're one of the, you know, X number of candidates based upon all the resumes and cover letters that are submitted. And then, of course, you know, you're, you're going to have difficulty if you struggle during your, your 1L year in surviving that round. But the extent that you do get an opportunity to come in and interview, um, you know, you, you now have that opportunity to sit in front of the, of the interviewers and let them know a little bit about who you are, what you're capable of, and give them a, a little bit more of a, you know, a deeper perspective on why you'd be a good candidate. And even if you don't get hired, it's a, it's a really worthwhile process. There's, there's a lot of benefits to going through the interviewing process. There's a lot of benefits to updating and perfecting your resume and writing cover letters. And by getting those reps and that practice, it's just going to make you stronger when you do it the next time. Right. I totally agree. And I think this year, because of COVID-19, I think we're almost in a different situation than we've ever been in before. Because um, I think now that OCI has been pushed for most schools into January, one of the hopes that we have is that um, because there really aren't going to be second semester first year grades to look at, because most grades are pass-fail, um, it gives you know, students an opportunity their first semester of their second year to do really well. And so I think, you know, one of the challenges I think students have always had is that, you know, for, it, it's very hard as you're integrating and learning about law school to also do well at the same time. This actually hopefully gives people a little bit of more of a chance. So what we like to see is also improvement. Um, so I think this, you know, taking your, your second semester um, of your first semester of your second year really seriously taking substantive classes. So I don't suggest that people spend the time taking, you know, all seminars or all anything just to get GPAs up. I think we are going to be looking for substantive classes um, and sort of hopefully people will have a better idea of what they want to do. Because I think, you know, when you're going through the first year, you're taking mostly core classes. Um, so you haven't really experienced very much. But if you think you have an interest in a certain area and your school allows it, being able to take, you know, much more substantive, but, but core classes of things, you know, for ropes, business classes, maybe a tax class, maybe a Oh, no. Amy, it seems like you may have frozen. <laughs> so um, while we try to sort that out, I think it is a good opportunity to move on in light of, um, of the uh, core classes that people want to take and try to present all of this to the firms. Um, perhaps, Brian, if you want to get us started, uh, do you have any thoughts on how perhaps is the best way to write a resume? Resumes. Um, I think the biggest misconception of students is they think a resume is just a list of what you've done. Um, and I think that's a good starting point. Maybe that's your, you know, your outline, right? This is what I've done. This is where I've gone to school. 
Um, a resume is a marketing tool, right? It is a per persuasive piece of material to say, I have got the skills that you need. I've got the relevant work experience. And if I don't have directly related experience, here's what I've done in the past that can relate to it in some way, right? So um, the hardest exercise, and I know this, you know, because I speak to my law students all the time, as I say, you know, you have to put down what you've done on paper, and then you need to take a step back. And you have to put on that hat of the recruiter at the law firm, or, you know, how can I evaluate this resume if I wasn't myself? And it's a hard exercise, but you have to take a look at it and say, okay, for example, I think some people mentioned in their first 1L summer, they worked for a judge. And you have to kind of, in your mind, say, okay, as I'm creating this resume, there are going to be a number of other candidates that also worked for a judge. What did I do that was unique? What was my relationship like with the judge? Is there a specific um, assignment or project that I worked on that makes me unique compared to everyone else that is going to have the same entry. And the same thing goes for work that you've done prior to law school. If you had a job before law school, if you um, had internship experience before law school, that is equally important. You know, Amy and Javier are talking about this and uh, Courtney, this well-rounded candidate, right? And so those are the things that are going to make you stand out from the fellow, your fellow candidates. That being said, the number one thing that I remember seeing when I got a stack of resumes on my desk for like a callback interview was formatting. And I know that seems like something that a law student should know right off the bat, but in a pile of 20 resumes, you can tell right away who has attention to detail, who can see that the spacing is different between paragraph or, uh, you know, sections or that some words are underlined and some are not. What are the rules that this person is following? And it may not seem fair, but that you are getting judged on that one piece of paper that next summer, if I were to give you a memo to write, would you show the same attention to detail and care to that document? So start with formatting, make sure that it looks, um, you know, neat and concise and, um, and then move to the content, right? Is it unique to myself? Is it providing examples? Is it specific to me? And how would it relate to the other candidates that have done the same thing? So um, it's a lot. And I think what's important to understand with that is that a resume is a work in progress. You could have multiple versions of a resume. Um, you're constantly changing it. You could be changing it every other week um, based off of the job to which you're applying. So um, please, please work with your career services offices to um, update your resume. But also I have students you know, give their resumes to attorneys at firms, um, even if they're not applying to say, hey, what do you think of this? Bianca, um, you know, you were a student once, you went through this process, what do you think of my resume compared to others that you've seen? And then, um, Bianca, you're nodding uh, vigorously. Uh, do, you, uh, do you want to chime in with um, examples, I guess, or of your own uh, resume building experience or perhaps um, tips for people to follow in terms of how they can best uh, flesh out their resumes? Yeah, um, one tip I will have is that to the extent that you're including either a job or an internship that you did a few years ago um, and you are kind of listing the type of things that you did, just make sure that you actually can recall that particular project um, because there are instances, and I will admit this happened to me, uh, where I put in, uh, you know, something in an internship and somebody actually asked me about it. And this was way back when I was in college. Um, and I could remember vague details about, you know, what I put down, but not enough to really 
um, talk about and, and kind of sell, you know, why the internship really helped me progress, um, you know, as, as, uh, you know, uh, as a worker, all those type of things. Um, so I, I think it's really important that, you know, yes, you want to make your resume unique. Yes, you want it to stand out, but be sure that every single item that you're listing is something that you can actually talk about in the off chance that someone decides to just pick one, you know, item that you did several years ago. Um, in terms of resumes, I agree. Um, I have been uh, interviewing for Summer Associates at Prosca for two years, and it is really important to make sure there aren't typos and that formatting is correct, because even among the associates, you know, we will talk about, uh, you know, say, oh yeah, did you interview that person? Oh, yeah, did you notice this? You know, and it gets around, and, and even in the event that you, that's not a big deal, you still end up getting an offer. Um, it's, it's not a good reputation to have coming in that, oh, this person has, you know, typos or mistakes um, in their resume. Um, and then I think also too, um, as Brian mentioned, it's important to tailor your resume as to what your what the job that you're looking for to the firm that you're looking for. So let's say, you know, you have a lot of experience, but some of your earlier experiences that maybe you had in college um, may not necessarily, you know, relate to what you're looking for. Maybe you would prefer to use that space to beef up a, a more recent, you know, legal internship that you had or something like that. I think it's also about figuring out the balance of where do I provide more information about an experience because this is going to help me, whereas maybe I just, you know, put like a line or two about another experience. I think it's also about kind of balancing your experience and seeing which is going to present you in, in, in the best light for a particular job. And then Javier or Courtney, is there anything particular that you would suggest um, that you wish people would put more uh, emphasis on in the resume or perhaps the opposite where you wish that no, they could probably actually uh, withhold that and not put that on the resume? Um, I would just say, leave out, leave out the mundane, hit the highlights. You know, I, I don't need to know the basic, very fundamental details of, uh, you know, what your role was within a specific past, uh, you know, job or internship. I can generally put it together in terms of what you're doing. Give me the, the more notable tasks that you, you had an opportunity to do that are actually kind of stand out from, you know, some of the, the general tasks. Just, you know, I try, I, I just don't like when resumes are, are overly loaded with information. Uh, I just want to hit the, the very important points. I agree with that. Also, I like, um, well, I caution people, if you put something like interests or clubs or something like that, again, like Bianca mentioned, make sure you know everything on your resume because people will ask about it. But I actually like it when someone has something interesting. I was a bartender for 10 years before I went back to law school. So sometimes it was on my resume or sometimes it would just come up. And it's interesting how many transferable skills are there. But anytime it was mentioned or on my resume, there was always a conversation. And there's a group of people within my practice group who interviewed me that were also former bartenders. And so we all kind of like have this like ongoing conversation about it. Um, and this is so, you know, like four years later. Um, so, you know, I, I think pick things that stand out. Definitely don't, you don't need to, you know, put every, every single task you did. If you, you know, were like an intern, you need to write that you read briefs because I'm pretty sure everybody does that. But if you were able to, you know, do a first draft of briefs or you researched a particularly like interesting topic or something, you know, like a question of, you know, first impression, like that's the kind of stuff I want to talk about. 
Um, and then to build off that, actually, Courtney, um, would you say that, uh, how would you differentiate a resume from a cover letter? And likewise, do, uh, do you find a cover letter to be necessary? So that's an interesting question. And I would say before COVID, I would read the cover letters because they were there. Also, um, MINTS participates in the uh, BLG um, 1L diversities um, placement, um, summer associate placement. And so I did a lot of those interviews. And so there's a, there's a component of, uh, you know, kind of, it's not quite a cover letter, but it discusses why the person is, you know, is interested in the firm and how they're, you know, how their, you know, diverse status or, you know, or life circumstances kind of like led them to, you know, want to be um, a lawyer. And I think those are really interesting. Um, but for COVID, I actually had a conversation with um, the head of our legal recruiting to prepare for this. And she mentioned that because um, a lot of people may have had interesting internships that were lined up this summer, but didn't actually go forward, that um, a cover letter is a good place to kind of um, to, to explain like, you know, what they would have done or, you know, discuss their, you know, pass fail grades or something like that. So I think you can really use that as a piece of advocacy. And especially, you know, if, you're, if you want to be a litigator, but lawyers in general are advocates. So, you know, if it's something, I mean, I think people will read it if it's there, make sure it's good, make sure it's interesting, of course, make sure there's no typos in it. But I think especially now you can use it as an extra piece of advocacy to say why you want to be there, what, you know, what, what interests you um, about the firm, about the law, and, you know, what kind of experiences you either had scheduled or that you, that you did this summer to, you know, kind of prepare you for it. And Amy, is that you? It is. I'm back. I apologize. Oh, no, I think our internet went down. So I guess this is life um, at okay. home. <laughs> uh, the perfect timing. Um, not to put you too much on the spot. Um, but yeah, sure. uh, do you have any thoughts about cover letters? Cover letters. Um, so I unfortunately did not hear everything that was said. So I apologize if I repeat things. Um, I think if firms ask for them, I would definitely submit them. Um, I think it's an opportunity to, to tell the firm more about you that you just can't figure out on a resume. Um, for us, we have a lot of offices throughout the world, so we tend to see people who say, I'd like to work in this particular office, or I want to do this type of practice. Um, so it's a great opportunity for us to get to learn more about you. Um, so I know that if we ask for it, then we want it. Okay. And then... This is an open question to generally everyone, uh, whoever wants to chime in. Is there anything particular that you wish people would do better on their cover letters? Um, treat it like a writing sample. So um, admittedly, when I was a callback interviewer, I often had time to skim the writing samples. And maybe then I'd pull a section and ask a question about that section if it was required of me as a callback interviewer to discuss the writing sample. So definitely I read the cover letter and those four paragraphs gave me a sense of your writing style. Um, it also gave me a sense of kind of your attention to detail and how well you can write persuasively given a short amount of space. Um, so a cover letter needs to, one, it, you should treat it like you're writing um, a paragraph in a brief, right? It has topic sentences. Um, there are, it's supported by your analysis would be specific examples from your past work. Um, and then it also um, 
you know, it has to show your personality in a way. Like Javier is talking a lot about, you know, it has to be a good fit. You're going, you're going to be someone I'm going to work with. So do, can I tell that you really want to work for this firm, that you have an idea of what our work is? Um, and can I tell that you've done your research, right? I see that there's a drive and a passion in your style of writing. And then that follows through if I bring you in in your interviewing. So um, it really is like a persuasive piece of writing that you have to treat just like you would your writing sample. And actually on that topic of the writing sample, should folks uh, provide a writing sample even when it is not requested by the firm? I don't think so. I don't read them. <laughs> um, I don't I... like writing samples because I never know what uh, what other people's contributions were to that final product. And so, you know, I will maybe look at them to see what this, what generally the subject is, because then I will take the subject of that writing sample and ask the person about it in the interview, because I'd like to hear someone discuss a legal issue just to get a sense of their ability to do a legal analysis. But I, I don't, I, I generally won't take the time to read through a writing sample just because I'm not I'm not sure how strong an indicator it is of their actual writing ability. This is Amy, I agree. I think if, if the place asks for it, they probably want to review it, but if they don't ask for it, you, there's no need to send one. Many times a firm will ask you, so um, you won't have to bring it to your screening interview. Um, they may ask you to bring it to your um, callback interview and it could be reviewed later on in the process. So it might not even be during your interview, but it could be something that's pulled out of your file um, if there's like a close call between a couple of candidates. So um, I agree with everyone that you don't want to be submitting, especially if you're doing it OCI, meaning through your school to apply to a firm. So not applying on your own, follow the directions. If they want a resume and transcript, it's tempting to write the cover letter, but just to show that you can follow the directions. Right now, it's a resume and a transcript, and maybe you'll get to supplement materials later on, but I would just always err on showing that you know how to read the directions. And then for the writing samples, lastly, is there any, kind, uh, any suggested for, uh, form of writing that should be used for writing samples? Um, perhaps Bianca or Courtney, you have preferences or experience with what you have submitted. Uh, so in terms of when I've uh, interviewed uh, potential summer associates, I have not uh, reviewed uh, writing samples. Um, however, when I went through the OCI process, I used my objective memo for my legal writing class, uh, which is what I think a lot of um, first 1Ls will use as their writing sample. Um, I think that if you have an opportunity to use a writing sample from an internship, I, I think that that's probably also fine. I have had friends that did that as well. Um, I would note that to the extent that you are doing that though, you should definitely check with your supervisor just to make sure that one, you can actually provide it and two, to see if there's any redactions that you need to make to the document. Um, so, you know, if you are gonna do that, just make sure that you do that. Also, if you are gonna do that, make sure it's something that you yourself really wrote and that it wasn't too heavily edited by somebody else. Um, 
you know, that's all, all, another reason why sometimes people use their objective memo instead of, um, you know, a writing sample from an internship because the objective memo is your work. You did that, you did the research, you did the writing, um, and it's not going to have the same type of edits that say something uh, that you did at your internship will have. I don't have much more to add. I don't think I've seen a writing sample, like a traditional one in a long time, except for um, with regard to the BLG summer, uh, uh, summer associate. Um, but I will say I did a lot of interviewing for um, interns and clerks when I was clerking. And um, I think it was kind of a similar thing. Um, a so one thing I would just caution, I think I would echo Bianca's statements, especially about redactions, but also just please, please, please um, edit and proofread. There was one in particular, we actually ended up hiring him, but it was like a long running joke. Um, this person had worked at a at, you know, the DA's office at some point, and there was a description of a defendant, and the description should have been a blue shirt, um, but instead it was an expletive that was very close to that. And so um, just remember that spell check doesn't always work and you should go line by line if you need to read it aloud or use a ruler or something like that. But just make sure um, that anything that you are presenting to a firm is, you know, is heavily proofread. Also, it's a huge pet peeve of mine for people who don't follow directions. So I echo um, Brian's comments. And I also know someone who um, did a lot of hiring for clerks and he would just like wholesale um, reject people's applications who weren't submitted in the grant form. So you would just like, uh, you know, outright um, reject them. So in light of uh, the COVID, this is partly why we are gathered here today. How would you say, Courtney, I guess we'll start with you. How has COVID uh, impacted Mince's, uh, uh, Mince generally and your summer associate program? If you're to whatever extent you're, of course, able to talk about. Sure, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think we've all had to pivot and, you know, adapt and change. Um, I know that our summer program for this summer has changed into um, into a fully virtual program. Um, it's, I mean, thankfully it's still happening, and I believe it's shortened from nine weeks to six weeks. Um, I know that for this coming um, year, we are, I think we're trying to shift to what we think a lot of the law schools are doing. And so I think our formal OCI program will be um, in early 2021. Um, but we are doing some interesting things. So before um, class, before finals happened and you know, classes were over, we did some virtual, um, you know, just kind of like brown bag lunches with a, a few law schools. And we did it in particular with the IP litigation group. Um, but I think Lauren Maloney is the, um, is the head of legal recruiting for Mint. And so um, I think she's tried to do some similar things with the other practice groups. Um, but I think what's good about things like that, you know, and th these kind of virtual meetings is, you know, let's say you don't, you didn't do necessarily that well um, in your first year, but if you're able to meet people from Mint and meet people who are doing the hiring, um, you know, we kind of evaluate people, you know, informally as well. And so if, you know, we care a lot about who you are as a person. We care that, you know, that you're a good person, that, you know, you're enthusiastic. We work long hours, so we want to be around good people. And so if I meet you and I like you, I don't necessarily care if you, you know, didn't do, if you weren't like number one in your class, um, if you can show, you know, competency and like, you know, kind of all the other things that we care about. So um, 
And then we are also still doing um, the BLG, as I mentioned, we also still have um, the Mint's Diversity Scholarships going on. So the applications are open for that. Um, those are two $20,000 scholarships um, for people going into their third year, but that also is two spots within our summer program. And then Amy, um, if you're still there, I believe you are. Yep. Um, uh, would, uh, do, would you like to comment upon how Ropes and Gray is approaching COVID? Oh, sure. So um, we are, you know, working remotely. We have a small skeleton staff in each of our U.S. offices. Um, so what we decided to do this year was instead of our 10-week summer program, we are running a five-week all-remote summer program. Um, and we are really spending a lot of time during this summer trying to um, not provide Zoom overload, um, but at least give, you know, our summer associates a, as good a sense as we can, because uh, it's obviously, you know, they're in, they're in their homes, um, as much of a sense of the, of the culture and the collegiality and sort of the, um, everything they can learn about the firm um, in this short time period. Um, so we are doing everything from uh, hopefully we're doing a lot of pro bono assignments um, and a lot of clinics and trainings. We're doing a lot of socializing um, over Zooms and videos and phone calls because we know everyone doesn't love Zoom all the time. Um, but trying to pair people as much as we can so they, they get to meet as many people as they can even this, in this remote working environment. Um, I do have to say that um, while this would have been hard to imagine months ago that we would ever be able to do this, you know, after being home for almost three months at this point, I think our, the firm has done a great job of keeping in touch with people. And, and so I think we've got some practice behind us at least now. Um, so as you can see, Zoom doesn't always work, but people are as resourceful as possible. Um, and we know that, you know, technology, technological problems are going to happen all summer. It's just kind of the way of the world. Um, but we're, you know, we're just trying to get people to, to get to know as many people as they possibly can and learn as much as they can about the firm in that five-week period. Um, so we're excited about it. It'll definitely be a challenge for all of us, um, something that, you know, I don't think firms have ever had to, had to do before and something that uh, summer associates have never had to experience before. So it'll be a very, very different summer than, than what's happened in the past, um, but it will be fun. And I'm sure there'll be, you know, we're planning trivia nights and possibly some cooking events. So we're trying to do as much as we can to, to keep it the same. Um, I'll be in other, you know, in people's homes. So um, it'll definitely be an interesting experience, I think, for everybody. And then Javier, uh, from your perspective, do you think your firm has been seeing a large change in how it recruits its summer associates in light of COVID? Or would you be saying it's uh, mostly um, business as usual? Uh, in terms of the way it recruits, it, it, it's a bit early to tell. Um, I think that'll mostly be dictated by how law schools handle their OCI programs. Um, you know, I, I think in Ohio, where our two largest offices are, they're handling things a bit different than in some states in the Northeast. And so, uh, you know, they haven't necessarily uh, entirely gone to a virtual platform yet. Um, in terms of how the program itself will operate, you know, we're taking the same measures, uh, you know, that Courtney and Amy have discussed in terms of uh, going virtual and then reducing the duration and, and trying to be creative in ways to make it, uh, you know, a beneficial and uh, experience and also give people a sense of what the firm is about and what the firm culture is like and, and why it's a good place to work long term. 
And then, so in preparation for the upcoming OCI that may potentially be um, purely over the inter, um, over Zoom or other video conferencing platforms, uh, a lot of law students may be worried about how they should prepare for these interviews. Um, Javier, uh, do you have any advice or thoughts about um, how that interview process uh, may play out or any, um, any thoughts you want to give to law students? Sure. Um, you know, I think the most important thing is that, you know, we understand that you're going to go through this process with multiple firms, but you need to approach uh, your interviews with each firm separately and do the necessary research to show that you've, you've, you have a genuine interest in working for that firm. You've taken the time to get an understanding for uh, you know, what the firm's footprint is, how they generally operate, what their practice areas are, what the specifics are within the office into which uh, you're seeking placement, and then uh, a little bit about the background and experience uh, of the, the individuals with whom you're gonna be interviewing. Uh, you know, that type of uh, research just shows that, that your interest is genuine, and it, it also gives uh, some good insight into you know, what type of person you are and how you're generally going to approach these types of issues uh, if you do get the opportunity to work for the firm. And then, and this is open to anyone, um, would, there, would there be any common mistakes that you have seen on interviews, whether it is over video conferencing or just in person that you uh, think people could have uh, done better, should have avoided? I think that um, from the perspective of when I was an interviewer, um, I mean, one, I wanna make sure everyone, like, and I'm sure Bianca and Courtney and Javier can all attest to this. We want you to succeed as the interviewee. So when an interview does not go well, we feel just as badly, and I would say 99% of the time. So I think what would used to make me feel a little sad about an interview is if I felt I was asking you questions that you should have known were coming, like, tell me about your first year at Suffolk. You know, how was it? And it's very open-ended and that person is not prepared for that question. Automatically, there's an uncomfortability and there's, it shows that either there's nervousness, which, you know, it happens, or there's lack of preparation. So I would always say, oh, maybe this person is nervous. So let's try another question that they know is coming, right? These open-ended questions or questions, you know, the resume is there. It's in front of both of us. So you know I'm going to ask questions from that. Um, I think where students get nervous about interviews are the unknowns, right? I'm going to get asked these really bizarre behavioral questions. Um, the only way to get good at that is to practice it, right? There are kind of a universe of questions that are always asked, kind of behavioral questions are questions that are trying to get at what you would do or what you have done in a certain scenario, right? So um, an example would be, tell me about a time that you worked with um, a boss that was difficult. How did you navigate that relationship? Something like that. Um, you have to have examples ready because it's difficult in an interview to come up with things right on the spot. So you, were, you have to prepare in advance. Like what are the examples from my experience that I want to use? And can that, can that be something to show teamwork or can that be something to show resilience or whatever it may be? Um, and the same thing goes with preparation of the shock with, student, you know, with a student when I'd say, so tell me like, why KNL Gates over other firms? And they were just like, how could you ask me that? But I thought, oh my gosh, I thought you knew that was coming, right? So um, it's all about practice and preparation. And if you do that, 
you will feel so much more comfortable and confident when you go in and I will feel so much more comfortable as an interviewer that I didn't do anything to trick you because that is not my goal, right? Um, so, you know, I understand that this summer there's a lot still up in the air and it feels like there's a lot of time, but with this time gives you much more time to prepare. And so I encourage students to get your materials ready because even if you might not be submitting an actual application, you never know when attorney X after a phone call says, hey, can you shoot me your resume? That resume needs to be in that final form, right? So let's work on that this summer and consider who your references would be and all those materials. And now is also a time to start thinking about interview preparation because you have time to practice individually, but also set up some time to do it with people at your school or with attorneys at firms. Um, and then lastly, I guess, so, you know, prepare your materials, prepare interview um, questions and answers, and then do your research. You know, we're all talking about, um, you know, the differences of these firms. And secretly, students always come to me and say, I really don't know the difference between mints and ropes. <laughs> and I, you can say that to me secretly, right? Um, your career services offices are there to help kind of differentiate, whether it's well, let's explore the industries in which these firms are leaders or their client base, or um, Courtney just gave you some really good information that Mintz has moved to hiring for intellectual property, litigation, and corporate, right, Courtney, as three separate groups. And so if I'm interested in corporate, do I know what a merger, you know, do I know what mergers are or do I know what private equity is? And now's the time that you can do that research and full disclosure, we understand as first-year students that you don't know all of this, and now is a great time to ask the questions. So um, prepare, 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 because we have time. And actually, to uh, build off of what you just talked about, Brian, how would you say an individual should answer that dreaded question, why fill in the blank firm? Why X firm? Yeah. Um, I, I think the general issue with the answers is that they're always too general or they repeat back things that you'd easily be able to ascertain from like the website. So the wrong answer would be something like, I'm really interested, well for Mints for example, people always say I'm really interested in Mints because it has a great pro bono program. That's great. I love Mints' pro bono program, but that's not the number one reason that you're getting hired at Mints. That could be one of the factors. Um, but instead, I would love if someone was interviewing for the corporate group and you said, well, I'm really interested in Mintz's corporate practice because as I was reading your bio interviewer, I learned that you recently did a deal with XYZ company. And that interests me because, and so it's very specific to the firm. That answer could not be given at Proskauer, right? Because I'm tailoring it to the interviewer. I'm tailoring it to that client or industry. And so you have to do your research and make it specific and not just say, oh, I read about your summer associate program and therefore that seems really interesting to me. And I know that, that is very an, an obvious thing to do, but it just takes some skill and practice. Um, and so, you know, all of you very organized law students out there, you're going to have, you know, your, your binder or your, your Word document with everything I know about Proskauer everything I know about that interviewer when I get the interviewer name or uh, the corporate partner that I talk to. And that is where you're going to draw a lot of your answers from for those dreaded why this firm or why something very specific about the firm. 
Guys, I'm just going to chime in one of the questions that we just received over here. So I think this is just for all for general, whether um, your firms will be hiring the same number of students for next summer, or do you think there will be a smaller group of summer associates that you'll be hiring um, given the uncertainty of the situation? It's open. Anybody wants to chime in? It's the same for us. We haven't reduced our plans for the, uh, you know, the, the summer of 2021. As far as I know, Mins is the same too. We, uh, we, have, we always have kind of, not always, but I think more recently, we've had smaller classes intentionally um, so that we really get to know the people who are, get to know our summers. Um, and then we know that we can place them. Um, so as far as I know, um, and I've spoken to people about this, it says that I think that we're, we're keeping with about, I think it's about 10 people total in, in Boston. Alrighty. So in a similar note, in terms of these interviews, if we are to have these interviews online through video conferencing, is there any particular, um, is there still an expectation for us to come dressed very professionally? Is there an expectation for um, that might be different than say when we show up in person interview? And I guess we'll start with you, Courtney, and then we can uh, open this up to the rest of the uh, of the panel. Sure. So I again, uh, this is something that I talked uh, with our head of recruiting about, and it's I think it's one of those things that like people either really don't care or they care a lot. And so I would always, in an abundance of caution, um, just be really professional and be really polite. So I think it goes hand in hand with, you know, like a thank you note or a thank you email. I think people don't care or they really, really care. But I think, I think also for yourself, you know, for me, if I'm, you know, even when I was doing informational interviews over the phone, I would still sit up straight and smile because it projects your voice differently. So I think putting on that suit project yourself, you know, and so you're kind of getting in that right mindset where you're not just sitting in your pajama bottoms um, and, you know, and having this conversation, you're, you know, you're having an actual interview for something that matters. And so to that end, you know, you should be head to, if you're going to do it and you're going to put on a suit, do it head to toe. Um, so you're really in that mindset. And I think, you know, I think people are, are going to have differing views on this, but you just never want to run into the situation where, like, you get the one partner who really cares that you're in a suit and you're not. And then to that, I would just say, you know, just as a general philosophy to, the, to this whole process, don't give anyone a reason to eliminate you for a non-substantive reason. And, you know, there's no, no one's going to cross you off the list because you wore a suit. It's not a, a real uh, hassle to wear a suit. Just, just put it on. Make sure that you don't ding yourself for something little and, and, and dumb like that and give yourself the best chance of getting the job. But I don't think you don't have to wear the suit pants, just the top. <laughs> just don't stand up. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's easier just to wear it and then you don't have to think about what you're wearing. And that way, if the person on the other side um, is not wearing a suit, you at least are more dressed. But God forbid they're in a suit and you're not. It just doesn't have the it just doesn't feel right. So I think it's just easier to do it and not think about it again. Okay. And then is um, during the, uh, so after the interview's all wrapped up, should candidates 
be expected to ask questions? And if so, what kind of questions do you hope uh, candidates to ask? And perhaps we'll start with you, Amy, from your perspective. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's hard. I think these, especially when you're doing callback interviews, it's a long day. I mean, you're there for a few hours. You're exhausted. Um, we, we know that, you know, we're not crazy. We're all human in this process. So my advice is do what you're, what's comfortable for you. If you've asked the first person your questions, um, really listen to what you're being asked. And at my, you know, once you get to the callback stage, I think you're interviewing the firm as much as the firm is interviewing you. Um, and so if you do have questions, you know, I, I think that's a great time to ask them. I also think though that if you don't have any, you can say I've actually, everyone's been great and they've answered all my questions. But I think the most important thing is to be true to who you are um, because as you're going through this process, you're trying to find a place for a long-term career. Um, just like the firm is trying to find a place where you're gonna fit in long-term. And so being yourself, being real, um, and I, I think that's the most important thing. So I don't know that coming in with canned questions is gonna make you any more desirable personally because the canned questions, we know they're canned. Do you know what I mean? So I, I think that's really the most important part is really be who you are. Um, and if you're a great fit, you're a great fit. But if you, I personally, I would rather know I wasn't a good fit being me than pretending to be someone I wasn't going through the process, you know, so. I think if you're gonna ask questions, ask questions that relate to the, the interviewer's specific relationship or, or feelings about the firm. For instance, you know, I don't like it when people ask me very general questions about, you know, about the firm. I wanted them to ask me, well, why do you think, what are the things that you like best about, about this office or about, about the firm generally? What are the strong points in the way that the firm operates? You know, I mean, those aren't, those aren't great questions, but <laughs> you, get, you get the idea. I, I, ask me my perspective on something about the firm. And I think that that's always a good way to get insight without it feeling like it's a, you know, necessarily a canned question. And I also think that at least at Proskauer, at least one of you, if we need to call back, at least one of your interviewers will be a junior associate. Um, and I think that's a really good opportunity to ask them, you know, the questions that you really want to know, like, you know, why, how has your year been, you know, or if they were, a lot of times I'll let people know, you know, I was a summer associate at Proskauer, and they'll ask me, you know, why did you decide to go to Proskauer, you know, over other summer programs? Why, you know, do you feel that your experience when you were a summer associate gave you a good glimpse into what your experience is now that you are, you know, a third year associate? Um, so to the extent that you have kind of those cultural questions or things like that, the junior associate that you're interviewing with can really provide you um, some good background kind of on, on the culture as a junior associate. Um, they're the ones that are most close to where you are. So, you know, there is certainly a, a comfortability there. And so definitely use that to your advantage if you have those questions um, about the firm that you're interviewing with. I agree with um, what Amy said in that it's, you have to remember that it, it's, it's supposed to be a conversation, right? And so, um, the worst type of interview is where it's just question, answer, question, answer. And we, we follow our format to the very end, which I think Jonathan's question was, should you ask questions at the end? Ideally, I would not mind as an interviewer if you asked me a question in the middle, because that's what you would do in a normal conversation. We have a, we have a back and forth, and I say something that piques your interest, and you want to know more about it. 
that's where a question would be appropriate. Um, I also agree with Javier, and I don't know if this is like a little trick, but partners, partners at law firms definitely do like to talk about um, kind of their work, their practice, where they see the firm going, talking about their insights, um, and they're happy to share that. Associates, and I agree with Bianca, like to talk about their work, what it's like to do the work, um, how it feels to do the work, and how they're integral in, on their team. And so that's not always going to apply in every situation. Um, but I agree that, as Amy, Amy was saying, like canned questions are very apparent. And so if you are someone that feels like you're going to panic because you're like, I have to have a question, write them out ahead of time, but then listen to the conversation. And if that topic comes up, there's a way for you to integrate that into the conversation, even though it was something that you wrote down ahead of time, right? Um, but this all, I think, comes back to the, you know, the idea that it has to be comfortable. You have to, um, I think Javier was saying in the beginning, you have to be smart, you have to smile, you have to be personable, you have to be confident. Um, so try to keep in mind that this is a conversation and not an interview so that you get scared. I'm just going to jump in with, um, we have a couple of questions lined up. Um, one of them is, you know, because of the current situation and the pandemic, obviously um, a lot of students find their whatever summer internships that they have lined up have been canceled. So I think one of our um, registrants was asking, how will their summer, um, summer internship placement during this time or lack thereof impact their chances of getting hired or being selected for an interview? Um, Brian, I think maybe you could pick that one and then Javier as well. You can drop in some knowledge. <laughs> sure. Um, I think, you know, no one is ever going to forget this, this summer, right? Um, and that we are all in unique and challenging circumstances. Um, I, what I will tell my students, and I'd love to hear from the firm's perspective, is it is, out, it is out of your control if your summer internship was canceled or whether it's going forward, but it's remote whatever it may be. Um, I would hope that if you, your summer internship was canceled, that you're still finding ways to build up your skills. And so if I see someone you know, in an interview and they tell me, well, I had this internship lined up and it didn't work out. However, you know, I decided to, to become a research assistant or I took on some pro bono work or um, I did some CLE and training um, in a certain area because I, didn't ha I haven't even taken a class in that yet. If you're showing initiative to kind of build up your resume in alternative ways, I'm hoping that we are all going to be forgiving of that. Um, and also, if you are working remotely, right, you, you do have an internship, but you're maybe doing um, some, you know, discrete assignments. I would love to not only hear about what they are, but what that experience was like, because I never experienced that until right now, right, as uh, you know, someone working from home. So connect with people on that level. Um, but I think, and I, you know, my gut is telling me that it's going to be a forgiving uh, approach if you're able to show that you, you took some initiative. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, I mean, there's no playbook for this. So uh, it's hard to say how people are going to approach it. But one thing I would say is if you, if you got an internship and that internship was canceled, Put that on your resume because you get points for that. The fact that you secured it matters. So put, put the, the internship, note that it was canceled on the resume, and then you still have to show that you made some productive use of your time. Um, 
a canceled internship does not give you license to just spend the summer at the beach. That's going to reflect poorly on you. You got to come up with something else and show that you're still trying to grow and make the most out of, out of the circumstance. Um, I, we have another very interesting question. Um, I think I'm going to direct this to Bianca and then maybe Courtney. So there was this, um, one of them asked, what do you think about a question after an interview um, when you're asking the interviewer, is there something that you don't like about my resume or is there something on my resume that would disqualify me as a candidate? Interesting question. Bianca, do you want to take it first? <laughs> sure. Um, that's a very interesting question. I don't know. Personally, I would probably not ask that question. I think you're shooting yourself in the foot. Um, I think that, you know, you know, later, if you, you know, if you build a relationship with this person, let's say, you know, you, you go out for coffee afterwards, but maybe you don't end up getting the position. If afterwards you've built a rapport, you want to ask, hey, you know, do you maybe have some tips going forward uh, for maybe the next time I interview? That's one thing, uh, but I don't think at the interview itself, you should be asking that question um, because you're essentially saying, I already know that something went not great with my interview or something's not quite right with my resume. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't recommend answer, asking that question. And I really, you know, I, I would just take a, take a, if there's something that you felt was off and you could tell from your interview, think about that. The next interview that you have, correct it uh, going forward. I mean, it, it, it's fine if you notice something while you're doing the interview um, and you want to change your approach for the next interview, totally fine. Uh, but I would um, advise against asking uh, that type of question um, in the interview itself. Uh, I agree. Um, I don't think I would ask the question. I think that's, um, I think if you prepare as, uh, you know, Brian was saying, I think most people have said, if you prepare before and you're, you send your resume to your career services or to other law students or to attorneys that you know, and you're taking advantage of, I know some law schools, I mean, I participated in some mock um, virtual interviews. So I think if you're taking those opportunities, like that's the place where you do that, um, you have a safe space to do that. But I think in the interview, um, you know, I, I, I really appreciate people who want feedback, but I don't know that an interview is exactly the place for feedback. Um, so I like Bianca's idea. If, if you stay in touch with the person and you have coffee later, that might be a situation where you have a conversation. Um, but I think that's something that you prepare before. I think it kind of shows a lack of preparation if you're asking for particularized feedback like that at the interview. Um, but I think, but I, I, I think the sentiment is good that you're, you know, you're, that you're trying to do better and you want to, you want to make your resume better. I just think that there's other resources for that. Um, I have one last question and it's quite specific, or maybe not, two more questions. <laughs> the first one, um, it's for, I think this is more directed towards Amy because of something that you said way earlier on about core subjects and about showing improvement on your GPA. So um, there's a question whether trust in the states, it is on the bar, but you're not sure whether it would be considered a core subject that you'd be interested in looking at. Absolutely. We have a trust in the state's department. So if someone's interested in it, and there's, you know, there's a huge amount of tax in that as well. So um, we would definitely consider that. 
um, there's this actually very good question, I think. Um, so this would just be open to everybody. Um, someone's asking if um, you guys could provide some tips on virtual networking in this time, because obviously nobody's going to meet you for coffee right now. But is there any way that you could, um, I guess, send an email and, um, you know, reach out to people and see if they'd be open to, to network virtually? Uh, so this is, uh, so I went to undergrad, I went to undergrad at Boston College. Um, and so it's a, it's a little bit different, but I'm part of, we have an alumni network uh, where undergrads as well as, you know, recent graduates can email you and kind of connect with you and ask you, hey, I have this question or can we meet? Um, and I actually got an email uh, this past week where somebody found me and they're thinking about going to law school and they saw that I was on there and they said, hey, you know, um, would it be possible to do a video conference, um, you know, so that we could talk or, you know, an informational interview of what does it mean to go to law school? What's it like to be an attorney? Um, and, you know, I think to the extent that your schools offer things like that, where there are people out there, there are alumni who are willing to meet with you, I say, why not reach out to them? Um, those are a good way to kind of, you know, and, and I would meet with students if I if I met you at a event and you said, hey, could I grab some coffee? I'd be happy to grab coffee. Um, so, you know, there are definitely people out there that would also be willing to do a video conference with you. So or a video call or or even a phone call. Um, so I think that to the extent that you have those networks available, I say reach out uh, because I think you will get people who will say, yeah, sure, of course. The other thing I would add, too, is that if there are particular people that you want to meet, you can always reach out to firms um, because the same way we would do this during, you know, if, if we were back in the office, we always are having students that come in. We have students who call us to say, can you introduce me to someone? So that is something we're still doing. Um, and, you know, it's just finding the schedule and, and working with a person and either doing it over the phone or by video. But I think, you know, people are still very excited to talk to, to future future colleagues. So I don't think this situation has changed at all. And I think people are always looking for interactive experiences. So, so Amy, um, to follow up on that, actually, uh, one of the questions that had come in was from, I believe, a law student um, that was curious of, at least perhaps for Ropes and then Javier, maybe you want to chime in as well. What is your perspective about potentially students who have built relationships, whether through networking events or alumni networks, um, to, to reach out to those attorneys to try to get perhaps around a, a, a different way to get uh, the attention of a hiring committee at a firm? Because a lot of students, of course, are already beginning to worry and wonder what options are there on the table if they potentially say strike out through the uh, formal OCI process. Right. So um, I definitely think that keeping in touch with people that, you know, people have met on, you know, at different events throughout the year is really important. Um, there's a reason we come on campus. There's a reason we spend trying to meet people. We want to get to know you. Um, and we know that during a 20 minute OCI interview, we're getting to know a very small part of someone. So I think all of those opportunities are great. I think um, it is hard this year to predict what's going to happen going through the process because if OCI is until January, we don't sort of know how it's going to work. We haven't done it before. Um, so I do think that it's different. I don't know that um, doing something in September or October 
is, I, I think part of it is just to keep getting to know people and building relationships. And that's the best part of it. I can't promise that every person would get a job offer that early because I think we're going to try to go through OCI. I think that's what the schools want us to do. I don't think they'd want us to bypass the whole system. Um, so, but I do think spending time in the fall getting to know people, um, even the summer, depending on what people's circumstances are. But, you know, we're going to continue with all the usual things that we do to get to know as many people as we can going before we get to OCI. Uh, if, if you have uh, established relationships, then leverage them. Um, you know, reach out to the individual. They might not be able to bypass, you know, whatever formal processes there are for, for hiring. Um, but it, it, it's always an advantage. Uh, you know, you, you never know what's going to come of it. So certainly try to take advantage. Um, you know, I've not uh, at my old firm, which was uh, only about uh, 150 lawyers before I joined Dinsmore, I twice hired uh, as summer interns, um, just people who had gone to the same undergrad as me, uh, who reached out to me with no prior relationship. And, you know, I met them for coffee, then brought them in and, and kind of pushed them for, for formal interviews. And, and they ended up uh, getting summer jobs and one of them got hired full time. So um, she started a month after I left. <laughs> which worked out interestingly. Um, so, you know, it doesn't even need to be someone with whom you have a relationship if uh, it, it always helps to reach out to people who have, you know, within your alumni networks as well. I would just add to that I didn't summer um, and uh, I ended up, I mentioned I ended up interning at a, with, with a judge who I later clerked for, um, but Mint actually um, has recently hired a lot of former clerks and so it, you don't necessarily, I mean, I say that only because not, be, not getting an offer through OCI doesn't mean that you're not going to work at a larger firm or a firm generally. Um, there's lots of people who found other routes, whether it's through networking, um, through other experience, whether, you know, let's say you were, you know, you worked for CPCS or you worked for the DA's office and you showed experience that way, or you did a clerkship or something like that, coming with different experiences, you know, as you know, even if you're, you know, you know, a third year or fourth year associate and you lateral or something like that, like, you know, just because you get one no, as Javier said before, doesn't mean you're going to consistently get no's. I have a friend who interviewed at Mint three, three different times throughout her early career and it is finally at Mint. So it, you just never know what the circumstances are going to be. And this is a really strange time. So we just don't really know how things are going to shake out. But I, I would say like, don't, don't get discouraged if you don't get your, you know, your dream job this time around because it might come up sooner rather than later and just keep in contact with people. I'd also probably add on to that. Be really open-minded about what you might think you want to do. Um, I think, you know, the economy is changing. I think different areas are busy or in different practices that might not have been busy six months ago. Um, so, you know, I think being really open-minded and really, um, sort of willing to do anything, roll up your sleeves. I think that's a huge help. And to build off of what has been talked about earlier, in terms of, uh, let's say a student doesn't um, get through the OCI process, uh, do, uh, and you can of course just speak to your respective firms, do, do any of your firms specifically look to hire students who didn't necessarily summer, but are rising three L's? Or is there a formal process? Or what would you suggest students who struck out through OCI do as potential formal processes? So we do, we do go into the three L market. It depends on what we need at any given time. 
Um, but the past few years, we have hired 3Ls. Um, we also have, you know, we hire clerk, we hire people off of clerkships. And so we talk to, I would say, to, honestly, talk to the Bryans of your school. Um, it, it, you know, to the extent you didn't do so well going through OCI or things didn't pan out right for, you know, so many reasons that are out of your control, I think. Um, talk to your career, the, the career guide, the career counselors at school. They, they know us all. Um, they talk to us all. Um, and I think that's a really important part of this process. Um, is to stay in touch with them so that they can help you. Um, but I think, you know, they're great in that regard and a lot of other regards too, Brian. So one of the things that we did recently too, and I think it, we're able to do this a little bit more because we're, because we do section-based hiring, um, but we've had some great um, interns either through the summer or through Northeastern or something like that. And, uh, you know, we found someone who was just wonderful and they didn't have a placement you know, they hadn't yet been hired. And um, so the particular person I'm thinking of was a 3L and it was it was spring semester and she was just wonderful. And our IP litigation group does a lot um, with section 337 litigation in um, International Trade Commission and she had just come off um, an internship there and then she was great at MINS and so it was a perfect fit. And so we just kind of found a place for her. So I think, you know, there's really creative ways to do that. And I think Amy's really right. Like this, the economy is changing, industries are changing. And so this summer is a great time to kind of figure out like, what are these emerging markets? Like what's interesting to you? How can you make yourself available and make yourself interesting to firms? And uh, this is open to anyone. Uh, what there, uh, from your experiences, and perhaps Brian, you can chime in as well uh, uh, to start, um, any particular um, suggestions for international students going into OCI, whether it's c considerations due to their uh, immigration statuses or perhaps just in terms of when they're applying to firms, what they might want to be um, selling a uh, selling point, whether it's foreign language skills or um, uh, willingness to work at other offices. I would love to answer that. I don't know if Nicole would like to answer that too, but <laughs> I don't want to put Nicole on the spot because she's one of my former students, um, international students. Um, I think that it's interesting and I want to be completely honest about the Boston market that Boston firms want to know that you are here and you have a commitment to practice in this city or this, at least this state, right? Um, and so I think that um, for an international student, when I am counseling them or advising them, we are very much working on kind of their story in terms of, you know, why, why are they getting the degree that they're getting? Why did they make the, it's it, a lot of questions go into why, why did you make this decision? How, how come you decided to do this? And then maybe unfairly, there's a lot more emphasis on what the plan is going forward. So we're kind of charting out, okay, well, what are the classes you're gonna take? What is your plan once you graduate? And so there is a lot of preparation needed to kind of think forward of what is the, the long-term plan. Um, and so that's kind of really the only difference that I see in terms of how I prepare an international student I don't know if Nicole felt any kind of roadblocks or obstacles when she was going through that, um, you know, personally, but um, I prepare it in that we have to be a little more um, specific about what the plan will be and kind of the why behind the decisions that we're making. I mean, because I've been through the process. Um, okay. So I'm Canadian. So we 
our visa status is a little bit easier to get over just because we have the TN visa and it's not, um, it's not incredibly difficult to get as compared to the H-1B visa, which requires to want to go through the lottery process. And so I think, you know, if you're able to get the TN visa for Mexicans and Canadians, like the firms are not, they, I didn't really encounter any problems. They just, they just asked me, do you want to stay in Boston? And I'm like, yeah, I do. And then that's really the end of it. Um, but I think I know of a few friends who are from China who had a lot of difficulties um, getting a job just because of the, the lottery process. And you have to be, to put it honestly, you really have to be an incredible candidate for them to be willing to put in that amount of time and effort and, and really invest in you because they could go through the process and you might not get it and then what? So I think there is a difference, unfortunately. And that's been my, my, my experience. So I'll just add, because we do a lot of international hiring, um, I actually oversee our, our global mobility, our immigration function at the firm. So um, we, we are talking to students all the time about this. And I, you know, I will say for Rogue, um, and I'm sure other firms have different perspectives. So I think it just depends where you are. I think um, we actually, um, if you come in, you, you actually don't have to say if you're interviewing the Boston office, you want to live in Boston for the rest of your life. You know, we have 11 international offices and actually now, and I, I think that might have been the old sort of, you know, ropes and gray. Um, but I think right now what we, 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 the way we hire is we hire for the firm. So we don't have, you don't interview with the Boston office and then the New York office or the Chicago office. Um, separately if you wanted to work in those different places. So if we hire you for one of our Ropes and Gray offices, the assumption is if you're great for Ropes and Gray X office, you're great for Ropes and Gray, you're part of the firm. Um, and so to the extent we need to move people, to the extent people need to go different places, that is definitely something that we do. Um, I think immigration is obviously, it, it, we're in a challenging time right now. Um, and I think that, um, you know, we have two questions that legally we're allowed allowed to ask people when they go through the interview process. We do ask those two questions because that's all we're allowed, um, which is, you know, and one of them being, will you or do you now need sponsorship? Um, because we do need to know. Um, but that being said, I think um, we have so many factors that we take into consideration. Um, and it, um, I just, it, to me, it's just, if the candidate's great, we're going to move forward. That's not going to be something. Um, there are sort of the, the concerns about whether you get an H-1B in the lottery, obviously TNs or E3 visas or other visas that are, that are you know, fairly straightforward, although I'd say today is a little more challenging in every area. Um, but, you know, to the extent that we are, we do have a whole process about applying for H-1Bs. We have a whole system that we do. Um, you know, our numbers are the same as everyone else in the world. It's out of our control. It's, it's, it's sort of pretty standard. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things I would say to people is, you know, when you go through the process, you know, know that the firm is not in the firm's control. This is the government. Um, and I think that's the biggest part about it. But we try to be really straightforward about it and supportive because we know how stressful it is. I think that's sort of the most important part of this is that we understand that these are people's lives at stake. Um, and so we try to do as much as we can to support the process, even if we can't, um, you know, make every result happen that we want to make happen. Um, but we're constantly working with people and, you know, to the extent we can move people to other countries, we might do that. There's never a guarantee on that. And I would never promise anyone that. 
um, because it depends on obviously what's going on in those countries, but we, we, we try to do as much as we can to help people um, because we understand how that process works. It's stressful. Stressful on us is stressful on you know, the candidates. So another question that has come in, and I think it's definitely a great question, and oftentimes is a, perhaps a frustration point for a lot of law students is, where, uh, law students are told, network as much as you can, create uh, relationships with attorneys, but uh, a lot of them are curious, how do they maintain said relationships? Other than updating the attorney of, oh, hi, I just finished my midterms, or I just, uh, I'm about to graduate. What are some perhaps talking points or, um, uh, suggestions you would have for law students in uh, maintaining relationships. I don't know, um, Courtney, if you want to start, or uh, if uh, Javier, anyone wants to chime in. Sure. So, um, I mean, so I remember I was told that milestones were a good time to check in, and I think that's a good guideline, but I think be a person. So if something exciting happened in your life, then you can share that. It might just be like, hey, it's been a few weeks or a few months. I just want to check in and see how you're doing. Or I mentor a lot of law students. And so especially the ones that I knew that were, you know, transitioning from going to classes to, to you know, to doing online learning. I was like, hey, how are things going? How are you? Just checking in. So I think depending on the, your level of, you know, like, I think the level of your relationship, you know, you can kind of, that can kind of let that be your guide. But let's say you're on a law review or journal and you just, you know, you just submitted your your note or your comment. You might send it and be like, "Hey, this is what I did," or let them know it's what you did. And or you know, um, you're doing a moot court or mock trial, and you know, just I think you can kind of do the general announcements. But for me, um, you know, I'm pretty open. I like to keep in, in contact with people. So if you just you know send me an email saying hi, or you know you want to have a Zoom coffee, like I'm totally happy to do that. I don't really need a contrived, you know, like every six weeks or, you know, it's a new semester, so I'm going to tell you all about my classes. If you want to, great, but you don't have to do it on that timeline. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think it's a good, you should model these relationships after kind of how you need to structure all professional relationships going forward with people outside of your organization, which is that um, networking, building those relationships uh, provides an opportunity for, you know, professional advancement or, you know, revenue opportunities down the line, but there has to be a genuine personal connection and you have to make an effort to forge a genuine personal connection. So, you know, it, yes, you want to keep the person updated, I suppose, on, on how things are going, but, but that presupposes that they're really interested in reading about your, your, your class schedule, which, you know, they're busy and billing hours and that's not necessarily the priority. Try to set up coffees and, and times to get together because that's really a way to, to build a connection and a relationship. And it, you know, you have to go into it understanding that you might not get some sort of tangible benefit. The benefit you get might be indirect. The benefit you, you get might be five or 10 years down the line or th there may never be a benefit aside from the interpersonal relationship that you develop. Uh, but you know, you, you're going to get out of it what you put into it. So just, just try to make it like any friendship that you have. If you just sent a, a text to one of your friends every six weeks telling them about your class schedule, what, what type of response do you think you would get? 
And then another question that we've had uh, come in, and then we can start um, perhaps with Bianca uh, to speak on perhaps uh, Prostgauer, and then we can open this up to everyone else to speak on their own behalf. But uh, could they give you a sense of how perhaps COVID-19 will affect summer or internships, whether it's for uh, summer of 2021 or even going forward during the school year at your respective firms? Or do you expect it to be similarly available um, or do you expect a lot of um, uh, uncertainty uh, going forward? Sure. Uh so I will preface that I uh, do not have all the details as to what the summer program of 2021 will look like. Um, so I just wanted to preface that because um, uh, I don't want to give any misinformation um, here. Um, I guess in terms of our 2020 summer program, as with the other firms, we're doing a virtual program. Um, we're going to be, you know, trying to put on events as, as you know, everyone suggested, you know, these virtual events. Um, we're still maintaining some of the same type of things that we would have during a normal in-person uh, summer program. So, for example, um, every summer associate gets a partner and an associate mentor. Um, and similar to kind of how we would do uh, with your associate mentor, your partner mentor, we'll have virtual type, you know, coffees, lunches, types of that thing, check-ins, um, similar to, you know, what we do. Um, you know, I I'm, uh, do not have um, information exactly as to, again, how the 2020 summer is, but I, I would imagine that it won't be very uh, different uh, than what we do right now. Um, you know, I think that hopefully it'll be an in-person um, summer associate program in 2021, fingers crossed. Um, but um, you know, uh, as far as I know, uh, Prosker is not really looking to, to change anything, um, aside from this year, just doing it virtual, uh, due to everything that's going on. And does, um, if Amy or Courtney or Javier, either of you, um, any of you want to speak about whether it's for the upcoming summers or if your firms do, uh, hire, um, uh, law students for internships during the school year, whether or not you anticipate um, any kind of deviations in that continued practice? I, I, what I'll say is that uh, law firms hate change probably more than any industry in the world. So they're, they're going to stick to what's familiar unless it's absolutely impossible. But, um, you know, beyond that, it's hard to forecast what's going to happen here. Yeah, we, we don't typically have interns. Um, we won't, but, you know, that hasn't been our practice. Um, but you just never know, as Sevier said. It's hard to know what's coming. And then another question that we had, this was going back towards sort of a bit about the resumes, but also just, again, in terms of COVID, because times are a little bit crazy. Um, some students were curious for if they do opt to receive grades in the spring semester rather than pass or fail, will firms take this into consideration for overall GPA or will the firms do their own calculations and count only grades from fall of 2019 and fall 2020? So, I think the students have thought about it more than we have. I have to tell you. Yeah. You're ahead of us. Um, no, I mean, my guess is if you opt for grades, 
you know, we'll look at them. You know, it's, it's sort of, we, we don't want to hold it against anyone. We want to help you. So, you know, we're really looking to make the best of the situation. I think, we, you know, I think everyone's had it. I think everyone feels that this is an unprecedented experience. None of us have gone through this before. Hopefully we won't go through this again. Um, so I think we just want people to end up okay. You know, we're really trying, we're, we're human. Um, and so we will, you know, we will work with all of you. I think that's the best thing we can say is that we can't be cookie cutter. There's just no way to do that in this circumstance. Everyone's coming in at such different perspectives and different things happening. If you choose Pat Dale and your friend chooses, please, we're not we're not going to start questioning that stuff. Everyone has personal circumstances that they're handling this this whole this whole past semester, um, and you just can't you know can't put people into boxes like that. So I hope that answers the question. I know it's sort of hard not to get hard and fast rules at this point, but I think you know I would think most firms are trying to be as flexible as we can be. Um, you know so. And then another question that has come in is, and this is, I guess, less about COVID and more just about how law firms uh, or just people evaluating resumes may take this into account. When evaluating um, a, a potential candidate, what if a school has mandatory pass-fail and there is no GPA? Um, and likewise, similar vein, if a student has particular awards, but let's say they didn't finish in first place, how do, uh, is there any advice for how students um, should go about presenting this on their resume? Should they be highlighting, I was a quarter finalist in a competition, or if they don't, if they just have pass fails, how should they be discussing their grades on their resume? I don't know if Brian, you want to perhaps take a first stab at this? Um, well, I think to the awards point, yes, quarter finalists, it's great. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I think that if there's any way for you to differentiate yourself and make yourself stand out because you not, you know, not only participated in something, but were an active participant and then were awarded for that, please, please do not leave anything off your resume. Um, I think for pass fail, I'm going to echo what Amy said in that I, I, I know how I would want firms to kind of look at things. And I think it is going to be in a very forgiving way. Um, this is so challenging to learn kind of virtually. Um, and so I encourage, so I guess what I should say is it's a really individualized um, decision to make. And I wouldn't want that student to talk to their, you know, career counselor who can actually sit down with them with their transcript if they have a decision to make, or if it's pass fail and say, okay, well, were, you, were the dis grades disclosed and this is something we could bring up in an interview that we want to work on that question and answer, that's great. I think they are going to be really individualized questions, so please work with your, um, your advisors at school, whether it's faculty or, you know, um, administrators like me, to, um, because everyone is going to be in a unique circumstance, as Amy said, and um, we'll try to help you kind of fine-tune it to, to, to meet kind of your specific situation. And then as we, begin, uh, as we uh, begin to wrap up, um, does anyone have any particular advice then for folks who say are going to strike out for OCI, what to do next? Is there any particular roadmaps that you would suggest and put forward? And perhaps Courtney or Bianca, you wanna take a first stab at this. Um, what should a student be focused on after OCI is all said and done and they don't have an offer in hand? Uh, so I would just, 
I mean, I think you just need to jump into your, you know, to your next year. And so if, in, to, to the extent that you can, if, you know, if, if you think that your grades, if there are grades, were, you know, the stumbling block, then um, I think Amy mentioned it, and I agree. I think showing, you know, a lot of um, improvement is, is really impressive. I think finding what you're interested in, because it might have just been that you just didn't connect so you didn't quite know the firms or you weren't quite sure what you wanted to do or how to articulate what you're interested in. And so I think practice makes perfect. So, you know, internships, getting more experience, you know, going on more interviews, it all is not lost because you didn't get an OCI offer. Like there's lots of firms that just don't do OCI. There's lots of other things out there than working in a big law firm. So figuring out what you think, most millennials don't know what they want to do. I mean, when I came into law school, I thought I wanted to be an environment, environmental lawyer. Then I realized I really did like um, administrative law. And so I would have never, I would have hated my life doing that. And I didn't know that I would end up in, as a patent litigator because I don't have a scientific background. So you just never know where life's going to take you. You just need to keep a really open mind and just take on as many experiences as you can. Network and just kind of figure out what you enjoy. And then I think your, your path will kind of lead you somewhere. I don't, I don't think most people, you know, like their path goes exactly where you would have, you know, planned it as a, as a 1L or when you first got to law school. I think everyone has some twists and turns in their path and you just have to kind of be open to it. Yeah, and, and echoing what Courtney said, I think that too, if your school offers externships that you can do part of class credit, so for example, Suffolk allows you to do um, an internship um, as part of, you, you take a seminar along with that, but that's part of the credit towards your classes. Um, I did that myself when I was there, um, and I think it's a really good opportunity for you to just get more exposure under your belt, more, you know, uh, exposure to uh, different practice areas, so to the extent that your school has those um, opportunities, I would definitely take those as well. And then Javier, do you, do you have any particular suggestions for students on how they can continue to build their resume, make themselves more appealing over time um, as they continue through law school, if, even if they may have not initially a uh, uh, copy eye of your firm uh, during OCI? Yeah, I mean, I think that if you don't get the opportunity through OCI, then you want to think about what you can add to your resume that's going to make you an attractive candidate in the following year to firms. And so, you know, if you can get an opportunity, uh, you know, in, in the judiciary, assisting a judge as an intern, uh, or if you can, I'd start looking for in-house opportunities, ways to go intern with uh, a company in a, a particular sector um, and, and get that, that. I mean, that's going to be extremely attractive to firms particularly, that you're able to develop those relationships and get that experience and get a feel for how uh, an in-house uh, you know, legal practice works. Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything that it's said. Um, Post-grad hiring beyond OCI is very different. It's, you know, if a firm is looking, they want to know that if they're hiring, they want to know that the candidate has relevant experience. So you have to think about your second and third year as gaining as much practical experience as you can, whether it's something in school, like you're gonna be on a journal, are you gonna take a leadership role? Are you gonna be like Bianca and do moot court? Um, are you going to do a clinic because you wanna get some client representation experience? Um, you're that student that doesn't know what private equity is, so maybe we do an in-house internship like Javier is mentioning. Um, I, I, 
for employers that are calling me for post-grad jobs, I mean, I'll have an attorney call like from a mid-sized firm and say, I just want anyone that's done a closing before. So if you are that student that harnessed that externship that got you the ability to sit down and do a closing with an attorney, then you're, you are going to have the leg up because you actually have the practical bill experience. So work with your advisors, work with the attorneys that you've made relationships with at these various firms and talk to them and say, you know, what associations do I need to be involved in? This one, what things do I need to be doing, right? To make sure that um, I'm on the path that I need to be. And like Courtney, you'll, you may completely change course. You know, you could do that real estate internship and say, oh man, what was I thinking? I don't like this. I can quickly redirect. So, um, you know, I probably say this a lot because I'm in the career services office. And as much as I appreciate, you know, the, the legal education aspect of law school, I want you to get as much practical experience as possible um, in addition to kind of learning the doctrinal law and learning the skills that you need to in your seminar classes and things. Um, you've got to treat your second and third years of law school as um, a way to gain more practical experience. Alrighty, and this is just the last note as we're beginning to wrap up. If anyone in the audience has any remaining questions, this is a good opportunity to send them in. Um, but uh, on another note, let's see, one moment. And then Amy, I don't know if you had any thoughts particularly also on as students are wrapping um, are are um, doing internships more during their second and third year. Um, is there is that similar to um, uh, classwork where you're seeking particular focused areas of internships that they should be getting experience in? I don't think so. I mean, you know, I went to Northeastern for law school and my co-ops were the greatest experiences that I had and they were all across the board. And I think the variety actually helps you figure out what you want to do. Um, so to me, you know, with, as you're trying this, if you find something that you love, keep doing it because you'll learn more and you'll get better at it. But, you know, the flip side is if you tried something and didn't like it, you know, one of the things I say to our first year associates a lot is knowing what you don't like sometimes is almost more important than knowing what you do like. And I know that sounds really strange, but when you come into big firms, like they're big and there's a lot of law and there's a lot to try to figure out. But if you can start to narrow down things that you know you don't want to do, that's actually really helpful. Um, keeping an open mind and knowing that, you know, what I always say is, you know, it's hard to look at what a first year or a second year associate does. Like you want to look at Javier, you want to look at the partner because you're going to be a senior attorney a lot longer in your life than you're going to be a junior associate. So, you know, giving that some perspective, but, um, you know, but I, I do think trying different things and being creative and, you know, even with the coursework, like take seminars, they're amazing. Just, you know, add in other things with it. You know, you just kind of need a balance with it. I think it's like with everything, like balance it out, um, follow your passions. You're going to love being a lawyer if you love the kind of law that you practice. Um, and so the more you can expose yourself, I think, during law school and, and honestly throughout your entire career, because um, I think people's careers change too. You know, I don't know if you talk to every partner at every law firm and say they came in as a first year doing a law that they practice now as a partner. So um, I think the more experience these people have, the better lawyer you're going to be. That's really the reality, you know. Right. Well, um, with that, I wanted to take the opportunity to thank again all of our panelists for taking the time today. Um, I know we all 
I mean, it's a Thursday, Thursday, Thursdays aside, uh, and the weather out is amazing and it's very nice out to go for a walk, uh, for taking the time and to share your wisdom, share your experience, and to be um, so willing to provide, uh, a, I think of, frankly, an open door for students to reach out uh, as a first initial step to practice um, networking as well, even though we aren't able to do it in person, potentially over emails as we, um, as we, uh, we uh, come away from this. There is the, I believe, the handout that was provided to all the participants, I mean, all the attendees um, about the background information and where uh, these, uh, all our panelists work if you have any further questions. And with that, uh, thank you very much, everyone, and also to the BBA, and hope you all have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Thanks.